Welcome to an incomplete field guide to ministry coming to you from the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. My name is Marvin Wickware, and I'm the Assistant Professor of Church and Society and Ethics here at LSTC. I'm here with my co-host, Kim Wagner, Assistant Professor of Homiletics. How are you doing today, Kim? I'm doing pretty well. I um, had a good reading week. Uh, I got to visit my five-month-old niece and celebrate my sister's birthday. Uh, so I feel kind of, you know, it, it's lovely to see family and get out of Chicago for a minute and reconnect and get to play with a baby. Um, it takes your mind off of all the other stuff, right? <laughs> but I'm doing well and kind of looking down the road as the second half of the semester is upon us and seeing uh, both all the joys and all the work ahead of us. So I, I'm trying to hold that in equal measure. So how are you? Doing all right. I, I spent a lot of the reading week sick, uh, oh, which no. good timing. Better to be sick then than at other times. Uh, but I, I recovered and, and just uh, preached a sermon and taught a class and like things are back moving and, and all of that. So I'm doing pretty well. So uh, we're continuing our conversation about how we continue to work and serve as our worlds become overwhelming. And this week, we're going to focus on systemic evil, overwhelm, and isolation. We, we see isolation as, as one of the, the many lies of, of that experience of being overwhelmed. Um, isolation is, is the way in which being overwhelmed convinces us that, that we're the only ones experiencing something, uh, that whatever it is that's making us feel like we're cut off from community, cut off from those who would support us or who we may offer support to, that we're the only ones going through that, that that, that very experience of isolation is somehow singular. When in reality, especially right now, it's incredibly widespread. Yeah. And I think also that overwhelm tells us that we are somehow broken because we are experiencing overwhelm, which itself can be very isolating, right? It calls us or pushes us away from others. And it makes us somehow believe that we are not as strong as other people or we're not handling it as well as other people. And so I think sometimes overwhelm becomes the source of feeling kind of a shame about thinking one is broken or thinking that I am not um, handling life as well as others. And so I think Overwhelm also spreads that lie that leads to isolation, that we are somehow not enough. I think uh, on, a, on a related note, we can feel like we're isolated because of some kind of personal flaws, right? That we're too hard to get along with or are, are somehow unlovable or that we have nothing to offer others, right? That, that somehow we feel isolated or are isolated because of something that's wrong with us, right? Because mm -hmm. of a personal flaw and not because of the very real failures of community that result in us feeling isolated, right? The, the ways in which people fail to be accountable to everybody in their community, right? The ways that communities fail to, to reach out, to expand, to welcome others in. Absolutely. And I also think that overwhelm tells us that reaching out or needing others is a sign of weakness or a sign of personal failure, right? That I kind of connected to exactly what you were talking about, which is that we start to think that we have a personal flaw if we need someone else, 
right? And that um, something is wrong with us individually. And so that leads to further isolation, right? Because that just exacerbates this whole idea of I'm broken or no one else is experiencing what I'm experiencing. Overwhelm lies to us, right? And says, if you need other people, then something is wrong with you. And I think a lot of this is exacerbated by our current culture and the ways that we think about things. I think about the American myth, right? The phrase that I hate, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, right? But this kind of celebration of, and even I would argue worship of individualism, right? This worship of celebrating that we can do it all on our own, that we don't need anyone else, that we don't need someone else, that I can pick myself up and move forward and I can do it myself, right? It's a very, I keep thinking of toddlers, my my uh, best friend and her, she is a twin 18 month olds. I'll do it myself, right? But it's celebrated in our culture and it's almost worshiped as someone who is strong and independent And so I think that exacerbates this lie that overwhelm likes to tell us that if we need other people, that we are somehow a failure or less than or unworthy or broken. Yeah, something I want to highlight here, too, uh, is thinking about this kind of myth of picking yourself up by your bootstraps, being this kind of unstoppable individual. Isolation isn't just something, right, that's experienced by folks who exist kind of on the fringes of community, mm-hmm. right? Uh, most of our listeners are, are either students here at LSTC or alums, and, and, and thus are, are folks who, who end up being placed at the center of faith communities, right? Uh, sometimes the, the folks who are kind of understood as being the, the kind of central leader of a, of a given congregation, right, the pastor, those folks can be just as isolated as anybody else precisely in the way that they stand kind of at the nexus of, of an entire community's relationships because they're left to do that by themselves, right? They're left to be the sole singular person who can kind of take care of the whole community have an, under their own power or through some particular unique relationship with God or something, right? Mm -hmm. But this one person who's expected to kind of be able to do everything for everyone. And that can be just as isolating as being excluded from the community altogether. Absolutely. And building off of that, that is that overwhelm of ministry that often, and I find that the pastors and the ministerial leaders and the community leaders who most often feel that isolation or experience that isolation. And I know I experienced that in ministry before I kind of figured out how to connect myself in a broader community of support is that you feel this sense of overwhelm that says everybody needs me and I am uniquely positioned or uniquely gifted to respond. And again, it's that lie overwhelm tells that says you got to do this on your own. You're the only one Mm -hmm. who can do this, right? And not you have a whole community who can do this ministry together, or you have other pastors or other folks in your life who can come in and support you. I think another way isolation is exacerbated, especially in our modern world or postmodern, whatever we're in, <laughs> right, is social media. And I, I'm always careful. I never want to just start villainizing social media for the sake of villainizing social media. But I think there is a culture around social media, and I think especially about 
you know, the presence now of influencers and things like that, where we show our best selves, right? I mean, and I'm guilty of it too. I'm not a big presence on social media, but when I am, I'm posting fun pictures of a hike with the dog. I'm posting pictures of visits with family. I am not posting pictures of the day-to-day drain of grading papers, right? Like I am not posting about when I'm exhausted at the end of teaching after 12 hours, right? I am not jumping on social media to share that. And I think most of us have an inclination to put on social media a kind of persona, but also to share the highlights and the things that are great. And so that can actually exacerbate that sense of isolation because I'll look at my friend and say, well, they're doing great. They have all this money or they're going on vacation or this is their eighth trip to Disney World or whatever it is. And especially in the pandemic, I have found myself and I, I, I've shared this with others and they have affirmed this has been true to them too, that I'm thinking I'm really struggling right now in the midst of this pandemic. And I'm going on social media because that's all I could do at times. You know, I'm just sitting there uh, doom scrolling, as they say. And I'm noticing all these people finding connection and, and, and doing well and trying new hobbies. And I'm sitting there going, no, this is terrible. Like, I am not doing okay. And they look like they're doing great. And then when I actually talk to them, they say, oh, no, it was really hard. And I'm like, well, not according to your social media, right? And so I think that social media exacerbates that sense of isolation because it does make us feel like we are alone, especially in our struggles, especially when folks put forward the highlights of life and not the everyday realities. Yeah, I think there, this is stepping a, a, a bit aside from the, the central topic here, but that that capacity of, of social media engagement to to offer a, a kind of picture of a, an ideal life, right? Mm. Uh, in connection to isolation is is a big part of the kind of political strife that exists in in the U.S. and, and around the globe right now, right? Because people people go online, they go onto Facebook or whichever platform they use, and what they what they see is people who seem like they're living fulfilled lives, and often those those kinds of portraits of fulfilled lives are connected to you could also find fulfillment if you get hooked up with this or that cause or this or that exploitative, you know, multi-level marketing scheme. Uh-huh. All of these ways of kind of finding people who feel isolated and offering them a sense of belonging and fulfillment through this kind of carefully curated social media presence. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think another way that isolation is exacerbated too is our kind of celebration of competition over collaboration, right? We've seen this in uh, politics. We see this in our Western education system. Uh, We see this even in churches, right? We are competing for members. We are competing for money. We are competing for grants. Uh, We're competing for, for space and for programming and things like that. And this kind of kind of gut instinct toward competition as opposed to collaboration, which itself is very isolating, right? And exacerbates our sense of isolation, whether it's individual isolation or isolation as a community, right? A sense of uh, being 
being a part. Um, a, a, we had a wonderful guest speaker, a good friend of mine came into uh, the Ministerial Leadership One class this week. And she is a wonderful Catholic uh, practical theologian. She works on worship, liturgy, and ritual. Um, but she shared about her childhood and growing up in as a Catholic in a town that was majority Latter-day Saints, Mormon, and how there was so much rich collaboration that she went to you know youth group with the Presbyterians, and then all the youth would go to the Methodists for you know, Wednesday night worship, and then they would go to the uh, Episcopals for this, and then they go to the Catholic Church for Vacation Bible School, because they ran the best one, and how all of these, all of the non-Mormon churches, non-LDS churches, were collaborative. And she talked about how that seems at first like a rich ecumenism, right? Like this great ecumenical connection. But then she says, but you have to recognize that it's because we both felt isolated and reinforced that isolation from the LDS folks in our town. And so we really had two kind of towns going on, two kind of communities going on. And I think that when we see things in competition as opposed to collaboration, that it automatically sets up isolation, whether it's individuals or groups or even groups of churches, right? This group of churches does this and gets this money and these members, and this group of church gets this and this money and these members, right? And uh, it, so it can really set up this kind of isolate, it, it can exacerbate that isolation. So I also think there's a theological foundation. And, and I know we love to think theologically on this podcast, which is why I love doing it, uh, especially with you. And that is, I think that there is a kind of basic belief in scarcity. And we talked about this in the previous episode, uh, thinking about intersectionality. But I want to name it again here in regards to isolation in particular, because I think if we have a theology of scarcity, then we believe that we have to fight for ourselves, right? Whether it's our individual selves, our families, our groups, um, the organizations we identify with, that we enter into life as a battle for resources, a battle for attention, a battle for uh, voice, to be recognized, to have room in the world. Because if we believe in a theology of scarcity or live into a theology of scarcity, even if we talk about abundance, then we're always isolating ourselves in battle against another, right? Or another group. And so I think cultivating, we'll talk a little bit later, cultivating theologies of abundance become really important, uh, but not just talking about it, but what does it mean to actually live as if abundance is real, right? And I think this theology of scarcity, this belief in, in not enough, and I have to fight for whatever I have, uh, becomes a, a theology that informs and uh, reinforces isolation. Speaking of theologies, the, uh, the, the first thing we talked about in terms of ways isolation is exacerbated, that, that myth of picking yourself up by your bootstraps, uh, is, is itself anchored in a certain understanding of, of who God is uh, and, and what characterizes the divine life. And, the, and there can be this kind of image of God as this like, self-sufficient man who exists apart from all of creation from any beings 
kind of like Zeus standing, you know, up on the mountaintop or something. You know, this mighty man with a big white beard, you know, kind of looking down upon all of creation and saying, I am greater than you. I require nothing. Uh, that image can can end up kind of controlling our sense of, of who God is and and what it means to to be divine and and therefore what it means for humans to reflect in some way the the life of the one who created us and breathes life into us so that what it means to to really be a thriving human is to be self-sufficient to stand apart to need nothing to be above others uh, in some essential way so that perhaps you render aid to others but you require none yourself that can can be woven into so many areas of our theology of, of what it is to be the church, uh, you know, in relation to to a world that that is suffering, right? The church is kind of this, you know, city on a hill sort of mm-hmm. uh, image, right? What salvation means, right? To, to to kind of be taken up as one of the ones who does not need, right? And kind of a really just a, a defiance of. of any kind of theological lesson we could gain by considering the cross and the one crucified upon it. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that kind of individualistic, uh, separated, often male, often white picture of God informs an ecclesiology that sets us apart. Um, It also, I think, informs a kind of broken understanding of, of sin and confession and lament, right? that it, it, it says that we don't need those things if we are self-sufficient and that somehow if we need lament, if we need confession, when we fall short, it's some kind of abject failure that not only separates us from one another and causes isolation, but separates us from God, right? And so um, I think having that, I love that you described that image so beautifully of this kind of self-sufficient separating God um, that definitely, I think, shapes Uh, how we see isolation and how isolation then gets exacerbated even by the church, right? Yeah. So what are some of the results of isolation? Yeah, I think the first one is something that we kind of hinted at or talked about more directly last week, which is that it leads to the pitting of people or groups against one another, right? In battle for resources, in battle for recognition, in battle for... um, having their voice heard and, and, and honored. Um, and so I think a lot of times isolation results in this kind of uh, competition, the increase in competition, this kind of sense that uh, it is us against them or me against you. And I think it becomes so ingrained in the way that we go about things that it, it is something that we have to resist actively. Because overwhelm preaches this lie of isolation, that one of our first instincts is to look out for me, to look out for us, my group, right? And so it pits people one against another. Absolutely. I think it also, uh, the, the self-sufficiency lie, right, is, is essential and, and central to the, the, the systemic evils of white supremacy and patriarchy, both of which kind of take one kind of human body Right and mm-hmm. and exalt it above all others as, as sort of the ideal form uh, of of humanity together, kind of white supremacy and patriarchy lifting up 
uh, the, the image of God that we just talked about, right? This white man who, who stands apart. But, but it's, it's not just that, you know, one kind of person is kind of lifted up as, as ideal, but that everybody who, who would strive to, to deal with how overwhelming life is, right, is kind of funneled towards certain modes of being, right, towards whiteness, towards masculinity, uh, so that whoever you are, however you identify, the answer to, to dealing with life when it gets tough and you feel like no one else is going through what you're going through is to act more like a white man, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's what it is to, to really, you know, deal with the situation that you're in, in a mature fashion, in, in a faithful fashion, right? And in, in a way that's, that's not just being dependent on others, right? Absolutely. And I think at a very kind of foundational level, that isolation results in a kind of lack of mutuality in relationship. If I am feeling isolated from others, I will not welcome that kind of folks reaching out to me or others will not welcome my kind of reaching out to them. And again, at an individual and at a communal level, right? That there's a way that it sets up a hierarchy of givers and receivers, right? That, that this kind of isolation and this kind of, kind of systemic isolation really sets up hierarchies of you are the person who gives and you are the person who receives. And honestly, I see this again and again in leaders in the church and in, in our communities who, um, when they are in need of support, when they are in need of help, when they hit a problem in their community that they don't know how to deal with or they're really struggling with, with contending with it, that I'll often talk to them and they'll say, yeah, but I'm not the one who usually asks for help. I'm the one who gives help. And naming that is huge because a lot of times uh, we do that subconsciously, right? Where we, we, we assume those positions subconsciously. Again, because we bought into this lie of overwhelm that isolation is part of the price we pay when we are not perfect, right? Or the price we pay when we are in a unique position, either a position on the margins or a position of leadership at the center. And, you know, so folks will come to me and say, but, but I'm not the one who needs the help. And it's like, yes, we all do, right? And in denying receiving help, we are denying mutuality and relationship, right? We are denying the fact that we were built to be in mutual relationship. And so I think one of the, the hard things to witness is isolation's capacity to take away the gift of mutual interaction and mutual relationship. Yeah. The, on on the, the issue of, of pastors, right, and, and other leaders kind of taking on that role of, I always help others. I'm not supposed to be the one being helped by them. Uh, a, a really important thing that, that a congregation can do right, is, is to kind of actively take steps to, to care for their pastor, right, to, to ask, how are you doing? What do you need? <laughs> are you okay? Uh, to not kind of require a pastor to, to kind of assert their, their needs and advocate for themselves, because the, the, the very nature of the role, as it's commonly understood in the U.S., prevents them from, from doing that. Right, it makes it seem as if you've you've failed, 
you know, in, in your pastoral role, if you're asking your flock for help, right? The, yeah. the shepherd doesn't ask the sheep to help right. help figure out where to go, right? right. We, we talked with Pastor Franklin a, a couple of weeks ago in our, our last episode, and this is this is something I, I remember from, from my time on the session at, at Durham Presbyterian Church, was, was there was a time where, where we kind of had to consistently go, hey, how are you doing? You know, yeah. let, let us know if you need a break. Like, let us know what you need financially so that we can figure out our budget so you're actually being paid in a way that, that gets your family what you need, right? Right. And, and that was like, he was resistant to that, right? It wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't the congregation actively saying, you're supposed to be looking out for us. It, it was... It was really hard for him to imagine being the pastor and consistently like having the congregation pay attention to his well-being. Absolutely. It, it felt to him, I, I think, like like he was taking attention away from, from where it belonged. Yeah. Well, and I remember in my ministry, we hit a really hard season in the church and some change needed to happen. And I'm being purposefully vague here to protect to protect the innocent. But one of the best gifts that was ever given me in my ministry, and probably the reason I was able to sustain my ministry in a church that was in transition the way it was, is because once some folks were alerted to my kind of struggling with dealing with some of these changes and and shepherding some of these changes, a group of folks from our session, but also some who weren't, who were just leaders in the church, got together and unbeknownst to me, I finally figured it out, put together a schedule of taking me out to lunch to check in with me. And all of a sudden I started noticing like, why is every other Wednesday do I have lunch with one of these six people, (laughs) right? And they weren't going to come and say like, hey, we have put together a group to help take care of you. But they did. And they purposefully took time to meet with me and say, how are you doing? How can we support you? What do you need from your congregation as we navigate some of these challenging changes in, in the church? And I will forever see that as a model of like how we enter into mutuality. And it was not me, right? I did say I'm not doing okay. I finally said that to one person and they said, we got this. And they said to the five other people, we need to help her. She needs to stay. We need want to do ministry together. And we did ministry together. I stayed three more years and, and healthfully stayed three more years, not broken three years, right? Not a three years where I was wrestling with my isolation, right? Three rich, good years of ministry. So Marvin, what do we do? <laughs> How do we um, push against uh, this kind of constant lie that overwhelm tells us that isolation is uh, not only natural but appropriate. I think one thing to to name is seek out therapy. Amen. Right, that that lie that we're isolated can can so easily uh, slide in, into a very dangerous kind of mental health space. Right, where we're feeling isolated, kind of in our work, can feel like. A, a kind of existential, complete, absolute isolation from the care and, and presence of others, and and that's not something to 
to deal lightly with, right? Like that's something to take really seriously because that could be very harmful. And and we you know we talked about some of the ways that that kind of story of isolation can can take root. It can go back to your childhood, right? Like it can come from so Absolutely. many places. There are so many forces in our world that will tell you that you are on your own, that nobody's going to take care of you and you have no right to ask them to. That it's it's something to really try to take the time to to work on in yourself uh, as as you can find it. Absolutely. And the recognition that that lie keeps getting preached to us, mm-hmm. right? That that we may deal with it in one arena or in one way or one season of our life. But the reality is, is that this is part of why we, we lump overwhelm, isolation, and systemic evil together, right? Like these, these are systems at work in our world that continually maybe preach it loudly or just whisper it constantly in a, into our souls and our minds and our hearts. And so keeping checking in with ourselves and reaching out for therapy, absolutely. I think there's also a theological kind of uh, move. And and we talked a little bit, I already talked a little bit about theology of scarcity versus abundance. And certainly I think, uh, what would it mean to invest in a theology of abundance that sees abundance, not just as material abundance, but what does it mean to live into a, an abundant kingdom of God, right? We talk a lot about the kingdom of God and what does it mean to help usher in the kingdom. And part of what that means to me is having eschatological imagination that lives as if abundance is already coming towards us, right? That is already here. And that's not to say we aren't realistic, right? About the realities and the pains and the brokenness and the hurt and the poverty in the world. But what would it mean for us to approach those problems with an attitude that there is more than what we can perceive at first, you know, at first view, more than what we can perceive in the moment so that we can act not out of, I need to get what's mine, I need to protect what's mine, I need to look out for number one. And we can begin to say, in what ways does the abundance of what I already have and the abundance I trust that is out there beyond what I have noticed, how can I live out of that and in, re- in mutual relationship with others? Absolutely. I think alongside that, that shift of theological focus or perhaps that kind of broadening of, of what, we, what we believe is theological, right? We, we need to, to shift the focus in, in a lot of congregations to really center the work of building community, uh, that, that whatever is happening in our churches needs to contribute to building relationships, to bringing people in, to helping them feel like they're, they're part of God's family, that they're part of the body of Christ in a, in a meaningful way. I think this has to do with, at least in part, kind of asking with, with, each thing we do, most obviously with, with things like outreach, discipleship, how do these things build community? How do we move from just kind of saying, oh, here's an interesting conversation we can have on Sunday morning where you can learn something to how are we actually going to learn about one another? How are we going to, to recognize one another's gifts more fully and draw upon them and offer them? Yeah. And I think that 
in outreach and discipleship, certainly. I also think in preaching and liturgy, we can begin that work. We can start those conversations, right? I think that there has been historically in the the second half of the 20th century, let's say, a, a trend in especially Protestant liturgy and preaching that this is the time to nurture one's individual relationship with Jesus. And I am all about personal devotion. Please do not walk away from this podcast saying Kim Wagner doesn't believe in prayer, right? <laughs> that is not what I'm saying. But there is something important that happens that when we gather in corporate worship, that we grow corporately, right? That our preaching and our liturgy invites communal connection. And I talk a lot in my preaching class too about part of what we do in the preaching moment is nurture shared faith language, right? Nurture shared faith that we can lean on in the moment, but also is held in trust for us as a community as we move into uh, these new struggles and challenges and hopes and fears. And so I think in our preaching and liturgy too, I want us, I want to invite folks to think about what would it mean to center community and the work of building community even in our liturgy, not just that we say the same words at the same time or all hear the sermon at the same time, but that we are actually talking about, praying about, singing about, dancing about, for goodness sake, what it means to be community in relation to and surrounded by the love and grace of God. And so thinking uh, corporately in that way. I think to, to wrap this conversation up, uh, we, we also need to, to broaden our sense of, of what in people's lives is, is relevant to and connected to the church, right? Uh, it, it, can, it can feel like church kind of has this really circumscribed place in, in someone's life properly, mm-hmm. right? That, that religion is over here and then work is over here. Maybe family falls under the religion category or maybe not, right? What we do for leisure is out here. And, but church and, and religion are kind of over in their corner mm-hmm. of, of our lives. When in reality, all of ourselves, right, is, is what we should be able to bring to God, right? To worship God, to be loved by God, to be loved by, by our community. Not, not you know, in, in the sense that, Everything that you are is is kind of fit for judgment by God and by your church community, right? Not, hey, everything you're doing, you need to kind of bring that to the church and go, hey, am I doing this like a faithful Christian? Right. right? So like right. that that can be how that sounds sometimes. That all of your life should be kind of relevant to the church, but rather that grace should be available to you in every aspect of your life, right? That if you're struggling with something, or if you, you're experiencing joy, you should be able to bring that to your church community. And in fact, they should already be there. Right? Absolutely. But before you have to bring it to worship on Sunday to ask for prayer, somebody should know that you're going through a hard time. You should have relationships with one another that, that extend beyond Sunday, right? And, and the, building those can look like different ways. It can look like book studies or accountability groups or prayer groups or whatever it is. But kind of broadening that sense of the, the place that church should have in our lives. Absolutely. And I think that we as churches also need to have a broadened, richer theology about 
what it means to be human, right? And to cultivate spaces that can name brokenness as not beyond the love of God or not beyond the community, right? I think if we are going to nurture churches that center community, that broaden what it means uh, for people's lives to be relevant and connected to the church life and to the life of that church community, we also need to nurture theologies that can hold space for unresolved brokenness, for struggle, for trauma, for uh, the, the everyday hard stuff, right? And this is where I think we lean into gifts like confession and like lament. We have religious language. We have faith language for this, but I think we are not always inclined to use it, right? And not always inclined to create space for it uh, that doesn't um, easily kind of resolve into hope or happiness, right? And so a lot of times I think people are resistant to bringing their whole lives and sense this need to isolate the rest of their lives from their church lives, that they are two separate spheres, right? There's my private life and then there's my church life. And this isolation that happens even within our own lives, right? This lie of isolation extends to our own personal lives. And what would it mean for the church to have a theology and practices that create space so that those things that we feel felt or feel we need to isolate from the church actually have a home there and are not there to be fixed or resolved, but can also hold space for just grief and pain and struggle alongside joy and hope and new life and exciting things, right? How can we nurture a theology that can hold all of that and practices and ritual and liturgy and preaching that can hold those things? Yeah, I think one one more of those practices that's available to the church that, that can help here is testimony. I, I think you, you could say anybody can preach, but really preaching is a is a really challenging task, right? To to work with with the biblical text or maybe more than one and what's going on in the world around you and the the history of what's been going on in your community and what happened in Fran's life this last week that I need to keep in mind before yep. I say something that's going to hurt her uh-huh. at this delicate time. All of those things that you end up keeping track of when you're preaching can, can really be a lot and, and, and require some training and, and care. But anybody can tell their story, right? Anybody can tell a story of, of what's happened in their life and how God showed up or how they asked for God to show up, right? Everybody can tell their story with, with maybe a little coaching, you know? Uh, and, and so testimony is a really powerful way to, to have more voices lifted up, you know, in, in your church and, and receive the, the affirmation of the community that, yes, you are speaking about God, you are witnessing truly to God's presence among us, right? And, and one of the things that I think could be really important in using that that gift that testimony can be to our communities is to to not only allow for but actually to embrace and lift up testimonies of of what I call testimonies of failure right times when somebody needed God to show up and they were never able to find where God showed up in that story where they lost someone and they wept and it did not get better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Times when they when they really wanted something, when they when they wanted that job or they wanted to go to school or whatever it is, and it didn't happen, 
and another door didn't open up to take the place of that one. They're still there. They're still waiting. Nothing has happened. Um, all of those things that, that frankly form much of our lives as people of faith, as people who are beloved children of God, those times where we can't say this was resolved or where we can't say, I held to my faith through this whole struggle and, and I was unshaken, right? Those times where we, the most that we really can say is, I showed up today, I'm still here with you, you yep. still love me, right? <laughs> um, that I, I think lifting up those kinds of testimonies as a, an important part of the life of, of a Christian disciple, of the life of the church is, is a powerful way that we can, we can kind of move against that, that sort of isolation that we're talking about. Absolutely. And I think that is so powerful to resist this kind of temptation toward smooth narratives with easy, happy endings. And I think that testimony is the perfect place to do that. But also just the way we contend with biblical texts, the way we preach, the way we teach them. I think um, one of the gifts of the lectionary is it pushes you to preach texts that you might resist otherwise. One of the challenges of the lectionary is it oftentimes cuts verses and gets rid of the kind of rough edges, right, of scripture, or avoids altogether stories that have no happy ending or feel like the grace is really hard to find. And I think that we as, as preachers, as leaders, as teachers, as people giving testimony need to not uh, conform everything to thinking that in a smooth narrative that starts with, here's the problem, here's what I went through, and ta-da, like here's the solution, or here's how God was at work in my life, or here's where I saw grace, right? To not feel the need to conform to that or to say that somehow if you don't experience that, you are outside of grace or you are outside of community. And even in our week-to-week -week preaching, needing to hold those stories that keep open the tension, in our week-to-week -week storytelling, telling people about our day-to-day -day lives that aren't Facebook-worthy, that aren't Instagrammable, right, and that we don't tweet about, um, and, and create opportunities for folks to share their story by modeling that sharing in the ways that we as preachers and pastors and community leaders lead, that we model storytelling that does not have a, and then they lived happily ever after, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think also li lifting up those stories in, in the context of worship, right? Like in the midst of, of the liturgy situates them within a, a time in our in our week that is clearly devoted to to worshiping God and to inviting and celebrating God's presence and and being able to to resist that that kind of happy ending kind of smooth narrative impulse in the midst of, of that celebration of God's presence is is a way to to affirm that we are never outside of God's love. We're never outside of God's presence, even when all we can say is, I'm here and, and I'm having a really bad time, uh, that, that we are just as much as always within the, the love and presence of God. Absolutely. And a God who is not some distant deity up on Zeus's mountain, right? But a God who is 
God's self community and a God who chooses to come incarnate in community and experience the day-to-day messiness of life. And so I think theologically, we as a Christian community are most faithful when we are willing to just kind of sit in the realness of life and bring that before God, because God is community, right? As Trinity, God is community, and God chooses to come amongst us in community. So I think it is the most faithful response we may be able to offer, and it's a witness that the church can offer in a world that is hurting. Amen. Welcome back, everyone. We are so thrilled to be joined today by Emily Montman, who is a second year MDiv MSW, so Masters of Social Work, dual degree student here at LSTC. Emily, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's so fun. We love these conversations with students. Uh, So the first thing is just, uh, we want to give you a chance to introduce yourself. Who are you? Where are you from? Sure. Like you said, I'm Emily. I'm from Ohio and kind of all over. I grew up outside of Cleveland, and then I went to undergrad at the College of Worcester in Central Ohio. And then my parents now live in Columbus, so kind of all over. And then most recently when people say, where are you from? My brain jumps to Yellowstone because I spent the last summer there and it became home. It feels like home now. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to hear more about your summer. So I'm going to ask you all about that. So wonderful, wonderful. Well, tell us a little bit. I know you had a kind of whole life of ministry before coming to LSTC. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that. And, you know, what brought you to LSTC? So my call process looked a little funny, like most people's, I think. Yep. In high school, I was that teenager who my parents were overly involved in church, and I got a key to the church. And so I was that teenager who went and just sat and ate ice cream at, like, four in the morning in the sanctuary, just hanging out, thinking it was completely normal. (laughs) Not not thinking in anything of it. And also for my high school internship, I was like, yeah, my pastor seems like a great person to intern with, thinking it was completely normal and fine. And then also in my high school internship, I did work with Rainbow Baby's psych unit, which was really fascinating and started me on this like bivocational track that you guys got a little taste of in my degree program. In my undergraduate work, I did religious studies with a focus in equine-assisted psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. Again, more of that taste of the bivocational ministry. And then leading up to this, I did equine-assisted psychotherapy for three years, so mental health counseling with 50% Amish and 50% English folks, which was fascinating, and then worked with adults with developmental disabilities, and then felt a deep calling to come and do an MDiv while also doing a master's in social work 
in a time of my life when a lot of things were shifting and a lot of things were changing. And so I answered that call by applying to the only ELCA seminary that allows for a dual degree program. And now I'm here and doing this work is really fascinating. I bet. And I'm so intrigued because I imagine that there's a lot of interaction between the MDiv work you do and the social work yeah. uh, studies and the ways that they talk to each other. Yeah. So this week in particular, actually, one of the readings I was doing for a class was talking about this idea of fractals mm. and how what we do on the small is also what we do on the large. And I immediately read that and thought, I could preach on that. <laughs> Absolutely. That'll preach. Yeah. Well, and that speaks to, I mean, uh, Marvin and I have often talked about the ways that we live in community yeah. in our local communities and the impact that that can have more broadly. And even though we feel like we're just working in our little city or our little corner of the world and the ways that it, it expands and, and spreads. Exactly. And really, as a church and as social workers, thinking about how we can deconstruct this idea that, quote, society, end quote, is a thing that we're not a part of and we're just watching, right? Or the church, in quotes, is something that we're just watching. We're active participators in it. And the way that the fractal of who we are and how we embody ministry and how we think about social justice or environmental justice in the church and in our personal lives, in our spiritual connections, how all of these things have that ripple effect. And it's not until we get that like individual fractal to line up with what we think is big church mm. that it's not going to make sense because we keep thinking in this broad terms, but the church is the people you see around you. And so what do the people you see around you replicate on a day-to-day -day basis between nine to five? And like, how does that actually reflect what we want to be reflecting? And how does that not line up with what we say we want? Absolutely. I love that. I'd love to also hear more. You mentioned at the start your summer in Yellowstone. Yeah. And I know that it was really impactful for you. And you even said it feels like another home now, another home base for you. Um, I'd love to hear about your work this summer in Yellowstone and yeah. kind of your experience. Sure. So I went with a Christian ministry in the National Park. Dr. Rossing also was a Christian ministry in the National Park person. Yeah. So, yeah. Right? Um, so she or I are great people to talk to about it. But with that ministry, we were basically sent to the park and said, go do church. I had a team of, it ended up averaging about eight people. I was the team leader. Everyone on my team was between 18 and 22 years old. And I was the only mainline person there, mm -hmm. which was an interesting interdenominational ministry. While we were doing it full-time interdenominational ministry, making church, running three services a week, having two messages given at the same time, doing all of these things, we were also running Bible studies and prayer breakfasts and hiking clubs, different things like that. We were also working full-time jobs and hospitality. 
So it was a lot all in one summer. The work actually really helped define my call more clearly. Before the summer, I didn't really have a clear idea as to why Word and Sacrament. I just felt I'm deeply called to Word and Sacrament. And I noticed over this summer in the kitchen that I was working with, identifying as a queer person in pastor school, everyone in the kitchen knew that I was in pastor school and they were like, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. And either would stop talking to me <laughs> because they were worried about talking to a pastor and cussing in front of me, <laughs> or they would just start asking curiosity questions or say, I can't be a part of the church because they're not LGBTQIA plus affirming. And then I would say I'm queer. And they would right. look at me like I had 10 heads. And we had really interesting conversations around that and some really fascinating moments of people th saying, I think I can be a part of a church if someone like use my pastor, because I think I can actually engage in this work now, which was really powerful. And I think in those moments, listening to their trauma in church and listening to their stories about how the church has affected them. All I wanted to do in ministry was then to invite them into sacraments. Mm. And I felt this really deep draw and call that in the worship, I was like, man, it would be really powerful to invite these people who have never been able to experience the sacraments given to them or delivered to them or in a space where queerness was fully affirmed and accepted and celebrated. And then to like share in the fullness of the holy with them in those moments was something that I was longing for. And I think that experience really like honed that for me and really clarified a lot of like, okay, so why do the sacraments matter? Because I'm a deep listener. I want to listen to stories. I want to listen to what people have to share in their experiences. And then I want to remind them that they are like called by God to experience the fullness of the holy in the sacraments where they are in their story. And they don't have to change or grow or do anything in the meantime. They can come right now today to experience this. And it'll lead them on a path of growing and expanding and thinking about new things. But the holy doesn't require us to change before we arrive. And really allowing people to experience that in the fullness is something that I feel really called to do. That's beautiful. I love that. It sounds like this summer, you had so many ministry opportunities kind of in every facet of life, right? Yeah. This the, the formal worship stuff, the uh, hospitality work, and then those in-between times. And in my experience, I feel like some of the richest ministry sometimes happens in those in-between spaces, right? Those transitional moments. Um, and that's just beautiful. And I'm so excited that you got some uh, kind of rich uh, clarity around your call to Word and Sacrament. That's really wonderful. Yeah. And I think I remember talking to Dr. Wickware before I left about being really worried about my intersectional personality, or maybe not personality, but my intersectional identities as a queer, divorced woman who's going to be a pastor. All of these things sound like they stack up against me. And over the summer, every single parts of those 
of my identity, each one of those things was used. Mm -hmm. And each one of those things was a place of connection and growth and a place of like deep vulnerability on my part that led others to feel invited to the space of vulnerability and really understanding that like truly the holy loves us all deeply and compassionately and cares for us right where we are. And that was really powerful too, to experience that in real time of like, these portions of my identities aren't actually a hindrance to my ministry. They're what's making my ministry powerful right now. Absolutely. It's the spaces that you get to embody ministry uh, with and among folks. And that's just that's so exciting. I'm so excited for you and even more excited for the church and for those who will uh, uh, get to be in ministry with you. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, as we've talked a little bit about your kind of sense of call and the way that it's not solidifying necessarily, but but showing some clarity, right? Clarifying, perhaps, is the right word. I'm wondering, what do you kind of expect will be the greatest needs of the church and society in the future? And how are you trying to prepare to meet those needs now? Wow, what a question. I know, right? (laughs) I think... I think we're asking you just to solve the world's problems right now. Right, you know, (laughs) it feels a little bit like we're on a pageant show and the answer is like world peace or solve world hunger, right? (laughs) No. But, you know, I, I feel like, especially because you've come out of uh, the equine therapy yeah. work and you've come through down this Yellowstone experience, that you have a particular thing, a particular need, I imagine, that you see happening in the world that you feel summoned to respond to. I think in my work at University of Chicago with this MSW, it's also providing a lot of layers for this answer. We've been talking a lot about the interconnectedness between social justice and social work. And I've also been thinking a lot about how the church's work is social work. We just call it church. Um, Yeah. And so thinking about like, how are we deeply embedded in this idea of social justice? And how is this like a key component to the way that we're going to be engaging in the world? I don't think there is a place for the church to not be thinking about the climate crisis. I don't think there's a place for the church to be not be responding to social justice issues. And I think these two things in particular are interconnected for me, deeply intertwined, and both of them need responses. And both of them, I think, have a lot of room where the church can be growing and learning and discerning together and thinking about like, how do we respond and how do we do this well? And how do we take ourselves out of this white supremacist structure that we're currently in to actually answer these problems? Because both the social work field and the church have caused deep harm. And so thinking about, okay, so what do we do with that? Mm. Like, what, what do we actually do with that harm caused and how do we move forward and how do we understand that like sometimes I panic a little bit because my brain's like the earth is on fire, <laughs> right, <laughs> right? right? Like ecologically, like we're dying. And Yellowstone was a fascinating place to see that, especially because it 
literally was on fire with wildfires and different things like that. National Park Service for the first year in I don't know how many years started putting out forest fires because we were too dry that they were worried that the whole park would burn, Mm. which they don't normally do. Normally they let nature do nature's thing. And they knew they couldn't do that this year because it would be so devastating to the wildlife that rely on that area, which is nuts. And so thinking about, okay, so How do we as a church respond to that? How do we as individual people, going back to that fractal idea, take what we do on an everyday basis and understand, okay, ecologically, what are we holding ourselves accountable to Monday through Friday? Social justice-wise, what are we holding ourselves accountable to Monday through Friday? What are we doing in these moments? And I think... For me, a lot of my ministry looks at the intersection of those things, Mm -hmm. the intersection of how do we cultivate a life that's sustainable on an individual level to work towards addressing these problems? How do we like, how do I go through my week actually doing these things where it can have a ripple effect where I'm no longer thinking about society as this big other thing or the church as this big other thing, but I'm living out society and church the way that I think it should be lived out, which is with really conscious awareness of my own whiteness and how that impacts spaces, really conscious awareness of what I'm not seeing, conscious awareness of who I need to invite to the table or... Even at the table, why people who I invite don't want to come? What's wrong with the table that I'm sitting at? All of these questions and like how to weave them into our daily lives and then also reflect that on a church level as a whole. So that's a really like big answer. (laughs) Well, it's a great answer to a big question. So um, no, that's so wonderful. And thank you for doing that work. And I love the way you're bringing together kind of your own um, intersectional identities with the work you're doing at the MDiv, with the work you're doing in social work, with your passions and your sense of call. I love the way that you're putting all of those things in conversation and in in service to the church and the world. It's, It's really wonderful. So... One final question. I promise it's much smaller. It's not, um, can you please fix the world? But um, I know that you are co-editor of our uh, of The Door, which is our student newsletter. Newspaper newspaper, newsletter. What are we calling it? E-paper. Yeah. Um, It's wonderful. And we, of course, had um, your co-editor on here earlier. And so I'm just curious about how you are living out some of this work that you are passionate about through your work at the door. Yeah, absolutely. I was actually just listening to Katie's podcast earlier today because I had listened to it before and remembered that she said something about the door and was wondering what it was. Um, (laughs) I would agree with what she said on the previous podcast. What we're trying to do, it doesn't take very long to realize that Katie and I are super into interreligious dialogue and intercommunal dialogue, including the community of creation, right? Like really thinking about sustainability and ecology, theology, and all of these things. Both of us are kind of massive nerds. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So 
a lot of what we're doing in the door kind of reflects some of that, but it's really thinking about like how to be intentional in what we're doing. How do we intentionally try and get perspectives and voices and different things and not make it tokenizing? We're not actually trying to find these people to do this work. We're listening to the voices in our communities and offering a space for them to have more room to speak more of what they think is important. And I think that's a lot of the work of the door is like, how do we engage as a whole community? And how do we really allow space for all the voices present to be speaking? And how do we be intentional about who doesn't have access to the space and why? Is it because they haven't gotten an invitation? Is it because when we send out a mass email and say, someone, please tell us if you want to do a door frame and no one's ever responded to that? <laughs> like, no one. <laughs> yeah, mass it... emails anymore, I think, are, are so easy to, to pass on by. And... Well, and I think that's like all of the participation in the door has been like individual. And also, if you're listening to this and want to contribute to the door, there please do. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I think that that like intentionality that Katie and I hold and thinking about how to really encourage the community to be sharing things that they're thinking about when it comes to the land that we live on, when it comes to social justice, when it comes to the LGBTQIA plus community and how that works in this space. I think a lot of what's happening in the door is just us pitching invitations to people to actually have room to say what they're already saying to us anyways. Like most of the things in the door, I heard from other people before I invited it into that space. So it's really like engaging the community more fully and really thinking about like, well, a lot of us are thinking about this work. Let's just write it down or make a podcast or do this other thing, like make a video, all these things. So I think it's, yeah, a good space for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I have so enjoyed the door this year. So it's been really wonderful to hear all these different voices that you are welcoming in. And absolutely, if folks want to be connected to the door, the door has an email, right? Yes. The door at lstc.edu. You get an email from it every week. You do. You do. And if you want to reach out, if you have something you'd love to reflect on or talk about or be interviewed, um, I know the door frame is a a short uh, little, uh, not little, it's wonderful. It's a Zoom interview. Yeah. um, Getting to know people. And if that's something you're interested in, I'm sure they would love to have y'all we would also the foot in the door is our podcast and if you the prompt is tell us a story so if you have a story that you're dying to tell whether it's a funny undergraduate experience a weird thing that happened at jimmy's last week or an imaginary story that you made up please come on and share it we'd love to hear from you i love it well, Emily, thank you so much for being here. This has been such a joy, and I'm so grateful for the ways that you are thinking about, uh, you know, the 
the problems we have in the world, but also how we engage faithfully mm -hmm. in social justice work and how we embrace uh, that work uh, thoughtfully, mindfully, intentionally where we are. And uh, so I'm just so grateful for this conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for the invitation. Absolutely, anytime. Take good care. Thank you. Right. Thanks for being here with us once again, and we need to offer our own thanks. As always, we first give thanks to Eric Fowler, our editor. You can find him online at ericoutloud.com. Thanks to the LSTC tech team for all their tech support. And in a season where I know they're stretched thin here with all of our online everything we're doing. Thank you to Keith Doc Hampton for the wonderful music we use on the podcast. And thanks to the LSTC Marketing and Communications team for their support of the podcast. You can always be in touch with us at lstcpodcast at gmail.com. And you can find out about upcoming LSTC events at lstc.edu slash events. Time out. Do you want to do yours and then I'll close with scarcity? Oh, sure. We can do it that way. Yeah. Okay. Time back in, Eric. <laughs>